This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex, associate editor and film writer at Deadline.com. Today I am chatting with director, writer, and producer Deborah Riley Draper. Now, Draper is an award-winning and critically acclaimed filmmaker and advertising agency veteran who will premiere her much-anticipated project, James Brown, Say It Loud, on February 19th on A&E Network. She directed and co-wrote the four-part series, which is executive produced by Mick Jagger, yes, that Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, and Academy Award-winning musician Amir Questlove Thompson. The docuseries examines Brown's legacy through exclusive interviews, never-before-seen footage, and his beloved music catalog. Now, Draper previously directed the two-part series, The Legacy of Black Wall Street, for OWN and Discovery+. Plus. In 2017, she received an NAACP Image Award nomination for her documentary feature, Olympic Pride, American Prejudice, which she also directed, produced, and wrote. And the film tells the story of the 18 African Americans who defied Hitler and Jim Crow in 1936 at the Olympics. Her debut film, Versailles 73, American Runway Revolution, opened New York Fashion Week and Toronto Fashion Week in 2012, then debuted on Logo TV. Versailles 73 is the first intimate look at the infamous Palace of Versailles fundraiser, which gave birth to the American Prêt-à-Porter, led by Black models. On this episode, Deborah and I talk about the process of documentary filmmaking and editing. We also talk about James Brown's powerful music and his civil rights legacy. With that said, let's get into the conversation. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast on Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. I love that two things that he brought to the table were like two taboo words, funk and (laughs) black. What's undeniable and consistently so in James Brown's presentation of self is that he's a black man. He's authentically and unapologetically black. Good morning. Thank you so much for waking up and being on the Scene to Scene podcast. I really appreciate it. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Super excited to talk to you. Same. I, you know, this is the perfect time to release, you know, your 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 documentary, you know, James Brown Say It Loud, which is a four-part series. And can you talk a little bit about your personal feelings on why you thought now during Black History Month would be a good time to release it? I mean, it's the obvious reason, of course. But I'm sure you share a personal reasoning for wanting it to go to premiere this month. Absolutely, Valerie. First, I am born and raised in Savannah, Georgia. My father, like James Brown, was born in South Carolina and raised in Georgia. So I bring a particular lens and perspective to the story about understanding the Blackness. And I wanted that to be centered, whether it was Black History Month or not, because I thought that James Brown, as 
as a figure in American history, centered his Black pride, his Black masculinity, and his Blackness. And my uncles and my father always looked up to that. And I thought that was really interesting to explore at this time when there's so much anti-Blackness bubbling up and, and around us to kind of look at what it would have been like as a man born during the Depression, buck dancing during World War II, recording his first song during the Korean War, and being catapulted to this civil rights figure during the 60s, especially after the assassination of Martin Luther King and being present in Zaire with Muhammad Ali. So there's a lot of rich history within his journey. And it was a wonderful time to explore that history through his eyes and use the archival footage and interviews and the songs and the lyrics to understand him better, but also to understand myself, the time and the culture better as well. I used to spend my summers in Albany and in a place called Dublin, Georgia. That's where my mom is from and my family is from. And we would take trips to Savannah. Oh, man. But I feel like, you know, I feel like I need to visit Savannah as an adult. I feel like it'll be a completely different experience. And after seeing the documentary, there'll be some context and history behind it as I sort of walk through the streets. So this is a, a you, like you said, this is a real perfect time. And what I want to know as a documentarian, your your structure, your way of organization, I'm always fascinated with how documentarians work to gather footage, to gather interviews, and to create the story that they want to tell. Absolutely. I, I think of it in two ways. Visually, I always think of it as a narrative because I want it to feel compelling and I want it to touch people in their souls. But I start by this these four episodes, I have to be honest, reflect so closely to the treatment that I wrote when I pitched the network and the producers. I feel so exhilarated by that because I stayed close to the vision that I really wanted at the very beginning of this. And it was inspired. I did a lot of preliminary research, listening to interviews, obviously listening to the music. But Valerie, there is a Look magazine cover from 1969 that posed the question, is James Brown the most important Black man in America? And I said, huh. Wow. Wow, right? That's a cover story. Is he the most important Black man in America? James Brown. And I thought, okay, I see a hypothesis in that question. And that became a bit of the framework because I wanted to find out, was he, is he? Was that the right question to ask? And certainly in unpacking his life, it certainly was the right question to ask in 1969. And I think as I concluded the four episodes and I stepped back to look at the framework that I built around his life, he was one of the most important Black men at that time for what he was able to accomplish, but also for how he moved through the music business and how he moved through the culture and how he liberated people in their thinking around their own freedom, their own liberation, their own ability to be entrepreneurs and, and achieve their dreams. So I thought, yes. So I looked at it in four parts. The first part was really around Augusta, Georgia. What was it like, right? We need to get to the source. We have to find the origin story of this of this particular icon and this being, because he's quite complicated. And we know this complication comes from how you're raised, where you were born, 
all of the things that fed into you as a child. So I went to Augusta to understand better the neighborhood that he grew up in, the abandonment from his parents. I looked to the juvenile institution where he was housed as a young boy. And I visited the brothel where he lived with his aunt, really to understand, you know, his joys, his pain, the trauma, the generational trauma that impacted him. And and also where he buck danced and learned how to work and learned how to make money and learned how to entertain people. I thought all of that was really critical to understanding who he would become. And and that became kind of the, the trajectory of that first episode, finding his origin story, seeing what his motivation was, and taking him to that moment where he first graced the school of white America, right? When he's on that on the Tammy show. That was the first part from being born dead to being able to blow the Rolling Stones and the Beach Boys right off the stage in his first mm. big performance. And then in that second episode, understanding how he became this figure that could be considered the most important Black man and looking at what inspired at Tougaloo with the march against fear and and really using that footage to understand where we were and, and how students at HBCUs were involved so deeply in the movement and how people began to use their platforms to help ignite this. And then that moment in Boston where James Brown is on the stage the night after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and he realized his influence and he was able to settle the Black citizens in Boston and make sure there would be no bloodshed. And he did the same thing in D.C. So really looking at the mechanics of the making of an icon in that episode. And then episode three, you know, when we go high, we often fall. You know, the wheels come off in episode three. You know, there's change in music. There's change in James Brown. There, you know, there are domestic challenges, tax challenges, all of the challenges that often leave our black icons quite beleaguered. And then the resilience and the work ethic of this man pulls him back up to the top in in episode four. So that's how I looked at it, the highs and lows of an American story, of an American icon. And that's how I unpacked it. And I wanted it to feel like James Brown. That's why in it, when you watch it, there's audio. So I created this canvas and James Brown fills it in for me and his words because I didn't want to speak for him because too often in our stories, people speak for us, right? Right, right. Let him speak for himself. And I think he was speaking to me when he said, say it loud. So I wanted him to say it loud. And and I think the idea of saying it loud is really the second part of the framework, being able to let this artist through his music, through his interviews, through his, you know, random bites on stage and and in in recording sessions, help us understand who he was and what drove him, mm-hmm. why he was, and why he he impacted all of the people that I interviewed, right? So Questlove, Mick Jagger, Bootsy, LL Cool J, Reverend Al Sharpton, Chuck D, Dallas Austin, they all have this fixed line, right, of inspiration that goes right back to the same person. That's pretty incredible, right? And and as I listened to them very closely, I understood their connection, but it helped me realize the connection of the Black men in my community because James Brown could say things and do things that were quite unheard of at the time. Um, And I'm sure my father and my uncles probably wanted to say some of the same things and do some of the same things, but they couldn't. 
they had restraints, you know, they, they, they were self silenced in their, in the way they had to move in the world. So say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud becomes not just this mantra, it becomes this edict and tenet that helps us understand that our voices are important, that our stories and our narratives shouldn't be mitigated and that we should be accustomed to and using our own voice to say it. And the it part of it is important because we know the it of our history is erased, diminished, oppressed. People pretend it has never happened or it didn't occur. And we need to say it loudly because other people need to be accustomed to hearing our voices. And we need to say it loud enough so that we connect back to our ancestors and loud enough so that we've created a pathway for future generations to know that that we have trod this territory already and they can just pick up the baton and go. And, and that's kind of how I approached the telling of his story. And that and those were kind of, you know, the tools that I used looking at that hypothesis, understanding the connection of the people that I interviewed, being able to speak very intimately and, and authentically with his children about him so that we got a full picture of the man, the highs, the lows, the good, the bad, as an entrepreneur, as a father, as a husband, as a musician, as an entertainer, and someone who was so deeply committed to self-determination and self-empowerment that drove him as well as the education of Black people. He he understood the limitations of his seventh grade education in this business. And he understood the power of the people that were around him who were better educated. So that was always something that was both an Achilles heel, but also a driver for him to educate his own children, as well as the children of South Carolina and Georgia. These stories on the surface can just be about music, but as Black people, we aren't ever just one thing. We're not one dimensional. We're not singular. And our stories need to be as complete as they can be, but they also need to be underpinned with what is happening in our country and what is happening in society around us because that really changes how we move. It impacts how we move. It impacts how we receive things. And these songs become not only music, they become instruments of revolution, instruments of resistance, instruments of inspiration. So all of that was going through my head as, as I looked at these four episodes and, and crafting them in a way that, that would help people understand, create empathy for a human journey and for a human struggle. And how did you go about finding the right collaborators for for the documentary working, you know, the series I know was being executive produced by Mick Jagger and Questlove. And when creating a work that's, you know, personal to you and, and personal to others who were fans and sort of idolized James Brown, how do you go about, again, finding the right collaborators? Well, you know, for me, I I wanted to to sit with a lot of people so that I could have perspective. But the people who sampled his music or the people who collected his ephemera or the people who were a part of his band or the background singers 
or the or the recording engineers. These were people who spent a tremendous amount of time with this man in different situations, in different scenarios. And some who only met him briefly or maybe met him once or twice, or like Reverend Al Sharpton, who knew him as a child and well into his adulthood. So these were people who would be honest about their interactions and authentic and and completely comfortable in sharing. And and that was that was the criteria. I wanted to understand the connection. So they needed to be connected to him. They needed to know him. They needed to know his music. Some some people were historians and scholars like Dr. David Wall Rice. His specialty was understanding black identity and the establishing of black identity as connected to black trauma and pain. And that was the same as Dr. Sinead Young. She she unpacks how intergenerational trauma in black people, both systemic, cultural, governmental, all of the things help help us uh, move, right? And also hinder how we move. So those types of academics and scholars were important for context. And then a, a person like Martha High, she performed with James Brown for almost four straight decades, right? So she was there from the 60s through the early 2000s. So she saw everything happening. She saw all the highs. She saw all the lows. She she considered him to be a boss and and a brother. So that was a very interesting perspective uh, for me. And as a woman and as a Black woman traveling in those circles, I wanted her perspective. So being able to kind of create concentric circles so that you can kind of get a full picture, that's that's what I wanted. I wanted to see all of the aspects of this lived experience and plug in people who represented those aspects as much as I could. So when you find the right people, you get the right footage, you talk to historians and you have the story that you want to tell. How does a documentarian go about working with an editor to put those pieces in the right place? Yeah, I had this treatment up front, right? This treatment from two and a half, almost three years ago. So from there, I literally scripted out my paper edit for each episode, carving out, you know, the arcs of each act of each story and looking at the archival that supported it, looking at what would, I did some initial string outs too, like throughout the entire research process before the interviews even began with, you know, with the people I interviewed, I I had a junior editor do string outs in a couple of themes, you know, race, music, Chitlin circuit, all of these, all of these different buckets. I had these string outs and from these string outs, I built the paper edit of what would be the first episode, you know, the rise and the origins story of James Brown. And that particular framework is how I moved through all the episodes. I looked at my string outs. I looked at my transcripts. I looked back at my treatment and I built that paper edit for the editor. And then of course the editor, Mari Keiko Gonzalez, brought it to life, you know, and she's such an amazing editor with the music because I gave her from a creative brief standpoint, it has to be musical. It has to be soulful. It has to be steeped in blackness. It needs to not remove James Brown from it. He needs to be centered, his words, his songs, his style, his moves. We need to feel that energy in the cut because she's a musician too. She's really good at cutting. So we can cut on that beat so you can feel as we move through the story 
but also making sure that it was vibrant and that it was alive and that and that people are pulled into his journey. And, and you, we worked so well together, we would go back and forth. And it was honest discussions and honest conversations about, you know, how I wanted something to look and how I wanted something to sound because the sonic identity was really important to me. And also the use of archival material was important. Like I wanted to use, and we did use Zora Neale Hurston's footage to set the context of what the upbringing of of James Brown looked like so people can see it and understand it. And it was meaningful to me because she shot that footage on 16 millimeter in 1928. So that's almost 100 years later that I get to use Zora's footage in expressing the community of which James Brown emanated from. So that's how I worked with the editor and also using songs. In episode three, I used Down and Out in New York City. Obviously it's from the Black Caesar soundtrack and we're talking about James Brown's work within black exploitation films and and how he used soundtracks to to really connect with audiences and really bring and bring these uh, movies to life. But for me, that song was not only from the soundtrack, but in it, he's talking about being a shoeshine boy. He's talking about the pain, the great migration. So there's history in that song and there's there's real soul in that song and a soulful journey. But also he's reflecting on his childhood where he was a shoeshine boy and he understood the angst that was happening in New York City in the 70s with all of the folks in Harlem trying to find their footing and trying to find their place. So Things like that were were real personal decisions and being able to pull photos from HBCUs and, and special archives and collections that were owned by African-Americans were important to me. And, and the editor understood that as well. And I'm, I'm curious and I'm guessing you work with the editor to make sure that Brown's voice is centered and that I've always found to be such a great skill that documentarians sometimes get really, really well. The person may not be with us today, but their voices still resonate throughout the piece and they're still allowed to have agency and still allowed to speak through what we see. Say it loud. It's about the, the the song itself is about agency. The song is about not having your voice mitigated. The song is about being heard. Say it loud. So we can't say it loud and not give James Brown that 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 same opportunity posthumously in these four episodes. He did it. He did. He was a man who spoke. <laughs> he was a man that he he didn't shy away from talking. He said what he said, and that's what he meant, whether you liked it or not. That's what it is. And so being able to string this archival together so we can understand his choices and understand his moves, it was critical that that we find and dig and search and hunt for footage that allowed him to express himself because he is an expressive individual. So part of being a documentary filmmaker is you let the story unfold. I come to these stories, no bias, you know, conscious, unconscious. You you have to let the story unfold. And the people that you've selected to interview, you have to let their point of view stand and you have to let the story live. And at the same time, you have to balance that 
in this case, with the music, because we all love the music, with the movement, with the feel, because that's a part of him. He commanded the stage. He was a perfectionist. So everything about his performance emanates from him. So the performances, the music, the interviews, that's all him. And sometimes as a filmmaker, you need to get out of the way and and, and let the and let the man tell the story. And and he is quite capable of that. And I wanted to make sure that that these episodes were a platform for expression for James Brown and certainly stringing it together, but also getting out of the way and letting the story unfold and letting the story hit you and everyone else who watches it in a way that moves you in a way that's both personal, a way that's historical, that's informing, and entertaining. And I think that's the magic of James Brown's Say It Loud. What I'm curious to know is, have you ever seen James Brown in concert before? Have you ever met him? Never. Have you ever seen him? No. I never met him. I've never seen him. My mother took a train, an Amtrak from Savannah, Georgia to New York to meet my Aunt Hazel, who worked at the Harlem Hospital for 30 years uh, to go see James Brown at the Apollo. And that was one of her all-time favorite things to talk about. Well, you remember when I took the train, and this was before I was born, I took the train by myself to New York and I stayed in Hazel's little bitty apartment in Harlem and we went to see James at the Apollo. That was like such a thing for her. But I I never saw him. But I heard him played in my uncle's club in Savannah. And I danced and I tried to dance like him and I knew the music, but I didn't know him. I didn't know his impact. I didn't know his struggle. I didn't know his story. And I was fascinated by it. It's so compelling. It's so American. It's so bootstrapping. It's so Black and unapologetically black. And I'm like, yeah, that, that part, that part. Because so many times, you know, in these settings, and I I come from an advertising background. So I worked at big advertising holding companies for the first part of my career. And so much of that is about code switching and self-silencing and accommodating and trying to fit in, right? So James Brown showed up as James Brown, right? that's how he showed up, period. Pink rollers and all showed up. That's how it went. And I I love that courage and I love that fearlessness. And um, I'm going to take that with me for the rest of my creative career. Can you talk about any examples of challenges that you experienced in making this piece? You know, with all that's going on with the sort of war on wokeness and the the aggressive campaigns to censor and silence Black stories, Black storytellers. Can you talk about, can you talk candidly about some of the challenges that you experienced, especially with, you know, talking about someone as outspoken about the state of things as James Brown? Well, well, you know, it's always a challenge to tell Black stories and to ensure, I think the challenge for me is to ensure that the Blackness and the man always remained centered. And that no preconceived notions about who and what Blackness is seeped into the storytelling. And my career from advertising to now, being able to fight and defend Blackness is always the challenge. I'm very fortunate and grateful that the EPs were Questlove and Mick Jagger who understood that 
and understood that clearly. And A&E supported that. And that was really important. And also, I think they knew who they hired, right? So, you know, going into it, they hired me. So, and if you've seen my previous work, you know that 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 what you get is Blackness. And I think the challenge is also finding, for me, the challenge is finding special collections and archivists and curators and scholars who had the ephemera that I needed because those people aren't always visible. They are hard to find. They exist, but but sometimes our Black scholars and our Black academics and our Black ephemera keepers and collection holders are, are hard to find. And I found that to be incredibly challenging. And also what I found to be incredibly challenging is a lot of our materials are not digitized right they're not they're not they're not easy to find but i am a super sleuth so i i was going to find it but i think that's hard and i think you know there needs to be more attention paid to our archival materials they have to be preserved they have to be digitized because when they're not it's very easy for people to say they don't exist they don't exist right right and is is this, you, you know, you talking about agency and everything earlier it made me wonder, is this why you're drawn to creating documentaries as opposed to fiction? There is a certain level of freedom that comes with creating documentaries as opposed to the slightly more rigid world of creating fiction. Um, I look at the history of your work, the legacy of Black Wall Street, which it's a place I just recently visited. I visited Tulsa last year and got a chance to experience that. Olympic Pride and Prejudice, Versailles 73. Like, you know, you explore Blackness and the various facets of it from different time periods. There's a curiosity there. But is that why you choose to do documentaries? And, and I also, you know, I, I've written a couple of scripts, too, that have sold and, and I've shot a narrative. But I think I'm drawn to both scripted and unscripted, but there is something very special about the responsibility and the accountability of real Black people who lived and making sure that their stories are heard and seen and respected. And I take that work particularly seriously. Olympic Pride and, Amer and American Prejudice, for me, learning that there were 18 African-Americans who defied Hitler and Jim Crow, and Jesse Owens wasn't the only one. And they stood in Nazi Germany and excelled. And the fact that they were forgotten really pissed me off, honestly. And one of my greatest moments in life is the fact that after that documentary was made, President Obama invited those families to the White House to recognize the contribution of all 18 African-American Olympians. For the first time in American history, that happened. And I was able to share this documentary with those families at the National Portrait Gallery. I cried like a baby because that moved me and that made me feel that I am recognizing the ancestors and I'm putting in some work and some fight to make sure that when I'm gone, somebody will still know what they did, right? So to answer your question, whether it's the Black models at Versailles, the athletes in Nazi Germany, this incredible community in Greenwood that was decimated and murdered, 
like we have to know this stuff and we have to learn it and we have to we have to look at this pain and we also have to look at this triumph that comes out of it but there are lessons in these stories that are specific for our community and we have to know these lessons and everybody else needs to know them too right? everybody else needs to know exactly and and, know and stop trying to hide you know this history it is our history it's america's history it belongs to all of us. We have to know it. We have to understand it. We have to have the empathy to have the conversations. And when we do, it makes us all better and it makes the communities bigger, brighter, stronger, and more together. Period. Full stop. Period. I was going to say, period. That like That's a great way to sort of end this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Deborah, for coming on and being so honest and real uh, about your experience working on this and, and your experiences in general. Uh, look forward for everybody to learning more about James Brown because I certainly don't know enough and would love an outlet to learn more. Again, thank you and happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month to everyone. And I definitely want them to tune in for the two-night documentary event, James Brown, Say It Loud, on A&E, February 19th and 20th at 8 p.m. So thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you.